0: Je voudrais être un pigeon Pour ne pas savoir à trouver un nom Pour l'établisser Ma chérie Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and I'm here with Victor, and today we're doing another one of our Changeling book reviews, following along with our canon walkthrough. We are doing the book that calls itself the start of a series of region books for Changeling. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Kingdom of Willows! This is a book that bills itself as the beginning of an epic story in the changeling dreaming meta plot amid a flurry of hopes and dreams with David and his new queen beginning a grand tour of their realm. They begin in the kingdom of Willows and then disaster strikes. You know, 50,000 foot view. What did you think of this book, Victor?
1: I mostly liked this book. It was a little bit weird. I'm used to being, well, to be blunt, angry at least once while reading any changeling book. Just like, unmanageably frustrated by something, and this book did not do that to me. I won't say there aren't sections that frustrated me, but I never had like that moment. I think Kingdom of Willows does some really interesting things, but overall it also never just like totally captured my imagination either, which I have to be totally transparent, I have never been a region book person. I tend to do my own research because region books fall victim to becoming of the time they're written, of never really being able to be researched as well as they need to be. All of that said, and knowing that I might not be in the target market for this particular style of book, I think on the whole, it's probably one of the three or four best books in the Changeling line. Just in terms of consistency at least and the amount it attempts because boy does it attempt to do a lot what was your 10,000 foot view how did you feel about it
0: I also like liked a lot of what this book tried to do it's one of the better examples in dreaming of a book that tries to do storytelling through characters rather than the we're just going to give you an abstract for history kind of thing. Although it does do that too. I don't know if it really quite manages to stay on the theme it was trying for, but it does manage to stay with the narrative it was going for most of the time. I guess that's my high-minded take
1: on this book. (laughs) We can sort of start at the beginning. What is Kingdom of Willows? It is... uh... The first and only kingdom book. So it covers a major region of the United States, the Kingdom of Willows, which is roughly the south, I'd say southeast. When we get into the geography section, you'll see that that definition is a, is a little asterisked. They take some liberties with it, but mostly it is the American South. Not including any of the Southwest. It definitely doesn't get as far west as Texas or any of those areas. So the very traditional, what you think of as the Deep South. So it's a region book, and it covers geography, and it covers major characters and players. And so I think in terms of the White Wolf book format, you could compare it to the By Night books chicago by night la by night only covering a larger region being a, a region of the u.s instead of a city and so it has to do some different things white wolf also decided this was the book that they were going to kick off their attempt at a major metaplot storytelling piece and this is where the story that everyone knows about david's disappearance is kidnapping by king Milg. spoilers All of that story is laid out. So there is a little bit of a conflict in purpose. Like, it's trying to maintain the theme of that story. It's trying to be a broad region book. Certain sections of the book are clearly only doing one thing or the other. Occasionally, they try to do both. I would say, overall, they succeeded at both things. But those two mission statements do occasionally get in each other's way. Would you agree with that, Simon?
0: I do agree with that. This book, if you look at the inspiration section in the intro, they go into some depth about getting your information from travel guides, which they clearly did. (laughs) And you're right, that suffers from making a book more of its time than it really needs to be. The other thing I think this book is remarkable for is that this might be the book that has the most to say, at least narratively, about the place of the Nunihi, the inanime, the prodigals, and just outgroups in America in general, in the Changeling the Dreaming Story. So on the one hand I, I wanna I wanna be, you know, hopeful and sanguine about that. And on the other hand, it didn't always do a great job of that. Like, it did a better job than a lot of other dreaming books did just by, like, virtue of it having the most to say and the most space to do that in. But on the other hand, for example, there are a lot of references to the war between the states. Which, maybe I'm being sensitive, but that's really dog whistly. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we complained about the War Between the States framing, I think it was, in Fool's Luck. And the one thing I will give this book, over Fool's Luck, it doesn't only refer to it as the War Between the States. Both that and the term, the Civil War, gets used. Slavery is acknowledged. The sort of rise of that dream, the problem with that dream is talked about. But then also, like... The casualness with which I would say player character style characters are put on both sides of that conflict, which I think was an attempt to sort of invoke the division between families. They even specifically mentioned that at one point in the write up. I, I think they were trying to capture that. I don't know how useful that is though. Like they spent a lot of time trying to unravel that knot and it's not like you're going to play it. There's not enough here to play a Civil War-era game, and man, the idea of playing a Civil War-era game just gives me the creepin' willies for a number of reasons. I couldn't imagine telling that story. It's interesting the way they handled that. The treatment of the he was also interesting. It's definitely the most expansive. It's intensely regional and fairly well-researched when you consider this was released in 99, so little to no internet resources. By today's standards, I would say it's meh, researched by what was available in the 90s. It's it's fairly well researched. But at the same time, there are just a lot of misses. Like, they set things... They use the whole story where the Kithane came over before their Dreamers, which you've heard us complain about that plenty, so we'll just let it hang in the air that we don't love that story. But... One thing about the particular way it it manifests here is they talk about them coming over and going deep into the hinterlands of America and discovering these local fairies called Nunyahi. And, like, at that point, once you're deep in the hinterlands, you're kind of out of the region that the Nanahi are from, and the Nunyahi Alliance came about later out of necessity. That's the canon. So I just... I read it, and I'm like, oh, someone didn't actually read the canon. Not all of these fairies were always called Nunyhi. Uh, okay. And they're like, there are little things like that. They talk about Nunyhi freeholds constantly and invoke them as an actual source of medicine. And it's like, I would love for the Nunihi to have access to freeholds for all kinds of reasons. But this is not the way to introduce that plot point by just pretending they've always had it. There's a lot in this write up that's nuanced and regional and focused that is good. It is probably the best Nunyahi write up in the line. But there's still just a lot of stuff like this that's really frustrating to read.
0: When we get into the history and culture section, we'll get there, I guess. Um, Like most of the Dreaming books, it opens with an opening fiction. This one is essentially like the omniscient narrator perspective of what happened during David's disappearance in the kingdom of Willows. I mean, it's decent. It's better than a lot of dreaming fiction. I didn't really have any very insightful thoughts about it. Did you?
1: I mean, the one thing that stood out to me about it is I think it's probably the only opening fiction that is central canon. I mean, most of the stories are, here's an example of how a thing works. Here's a cultural example of something we're going to talk about. Here's a story that matters in the context of this book abstractly, but like, this is the thing. This is the kidnapping. This is the plotting. This is a perfect example of how boring David is. God, it just—that was one thing reading this fiction, is it just stood out to me just how blasé main character good guy she, David, really is, and how much more interesting King Mail is. But, like, if you care about this story broadly, like the canon piece, you should read this opening fiction. And I don't think I'd say that about any other opening fiction in any other books. It will not endear you to David, though. Not if you like anyone with character traits.
0: The only thing that really stood out to me about the opening fiction is that it paints the coming conflict for the throne much better than Warren Concordia did. I didn't have the same, like, oh, I don't get why these people are here. Like, we've got one too many kind of thing going on that I did with the write-up on the player's later on in the meta plot like everybody here kind of makes sense like they give them a motivation and i believe it even if
1: i think it's kind of dumb i would agree with that the write-ups on the story in this book are very concrete they feel much more lived and accessible than certainly fool's luck which was incredibly abstract and even more so than warren concordia because warren concordia was more of like a 10,000-foot view, and this is very intimately about the kidnapping itself, about the emergence of Cerceif, about all the conniving that Maelg is doing. Because there are people doing things, and you get the actual characters that matter in this narrative form, I think it is much more accessible.
0: This book goes on into a standard White Wolf introduction-type thing, where they tell you what they're going to tell you, This is where some of my problems with this book started to become apparent, because they go through a list of the regions encompassed by the Kingdom of Willows. They go to some length to associate the Kingdom of Willows with the South, in the sense of the Civil War South, and they include places that I don't think most people would include as part of the regional South, and we'll get to that. It also tells you that it's going to tell you about some of the Galane and some of the Prodigals and deal with some of the outgroups. And like, I made a note of that when I came to it in this book, because I was like, oh, I'm coming back to this because they're not going to do it. And they did. So it's nice to be wrong.
1: Yeah, they did. And like, this is a meaty book. It is large for a changeling book. It's 174 pages. And they really do everything they tell you they're going to set out to do. I mean, the introduction is a White Wolf introduction, and it's fairly straightforward. The very next thing they jump into, unsurprisingly for, you know, any White Wolf book, is the history of the Kingdom of Willows. And this is where we get into some of the stuff that we talked about before. But it opens with this little vignette from Leti Araminthni Fiona. And I figured, okay, there's going to be a fun little vignette. Her writings show up throughout the history section. Some of them are very short. Some of them are longer. But they do a really good job of injecting actual changeling plot into a section that like a lot of White Wolf books ends up reading like a general history summary like it'll be paragraphs of just oh this is actually just american history like overview american history and like they'll mention trolls once but then these sidebars are really just all about changeling and they aren't all interesting occasionally i read them and i'm like oh this is We can't decide what the she actually believes, and they're just all over the place. But some of them are actually quite useful for framing things. So I liked that they followed that little narrative device all the way through, because I'm not used to seeing that in most White Wolf books, actually.
0: Yeah, overall, I think they did a pretty good job with characterization in this book. Which is interesting because they didn't do the thing they sometimes do where, like, each chapter is written by a perspective character. I think all of this book, like, is just using, you know, RPG manual voice for that content. And maybe it's just because it's side by side with so many little sidebars that are clearly from character perspectives. But the character perspective stuff works pretty well here. And if you're looking for a book that has a lot of, like, Let's work out some real-world history from the Changeling perspective. This one's not the worst. It even opens the history section talking about the first people, and it devotes a more reasonable amount of time to that than a, I think any other Dreaming book did, except maybe the Player's Guide. I mean, they got some stuff wrong. Let's just put that there. But so far, it's kind of the best attempt anybody's tried in Dreaming, I think.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. And to jump a little bit to the end of the book, because it the two things tie together, this is also the only book that ever introduced a new family of Nunyahi, the Thought Crafters, who are the children of Manabas. Or if you've listened to earlier episodes where we talk about the Nunyahi, another name for him is Nanabuju. They get some things wrong about Manabas, but they get a lot of stuff right about him as well. They limit the tribes that he's part of, that he's represented in, much more than in reality. That figure has many, many names and appears in many, many tribes along the East Coast all the way over to the Midwest. And I would have liked if that hadn't been as limited as they made it. But the thing that stood out to me is they gave a name to a major Nunihi mythic figure. And it wasn't just Manibus. There were a couple other figures like that, siblings that appeared in the history section about the Nunehi. And it's like, oh, that's an ancient myth that if I were playing a Nunyihi, I could connect myself with. It doesn't seem like much. I mean, this is a low bar we're setting here. But if you think about it, for the regular changelings, you get Balor, you get the Red King, you get Lu... You get all of the house founders. There are these mythic age characters. And the Nunihi don't really have that, except they actually give you that in this book. They aren't fully developed. They aren't paragraphs and paragraphs of exposition. But they did a lot of things right with this write-up that they've never done before or since with the Nunyihi. Like Simon says, there are some details they got wrong and they do just the mushiest version of the Cathay. came over early, and they could have been anywhere in the U.S., and I'm not a huge fan of that. But I still overall really appreciate what they attempted and some of what they did get right with the Nunihi write-up.
0: And they also do a fair amount with the the history of the region after the Europeans came over. They do... Like Victor said that like the she came over, and they somehow have claimed to these places somehow, and then the shattering happens and the she retreat, although they did mention that some of them stayed behind as a little bookmark to make the lost ones in the prodigal section make a little bit more sense. And they differentiated the the shattering in Europe versus the shattering in America. Very explicitly, they talk about Arcadia being different from the Higher Hunting Grounds and how access to the Higher Hunting Grounds persisted much longer than access to Arcadia did, which, C20, I guess. But then they get into real-world stuff again, and they start talking about the Revolutionary War, colonization, tensions between the First People and the Nunahee and the settlers and the Cathayne, such as they are after the She-Leave. They do a lot of associating the coming war in Concordia with the American Civil War, but they don't do it quite explicitly enough for me to feel comfortable saying they were intentionally doing this, but I really do think they were intentionally doing this. There's a point where they make almost a direct comparison between Lincoln and High King David, which we'll see. (laughs) But... The talk about the Civil War is probably the roughest part of this book for me just because they don't quite go far enough in explicitly tying the cultural South with what would become the Kingdom of Willows later and like its political movements and its culture for me to be like, oh, this is a direct metaphor, this makes sense. And they softened the the real world South a little bit too much without explicitly like tying those things together and it it just becomes a bit of a mess, I think. <laughs> then they get into World War One a little bit and it starts to read a little bit like a rehash if you've read War and Concordia and Fool's Luck and some of the other books. The one thing that really jumped out at me was House skaha is name checked as taking the side of the South in the Civil War which I'm I'm going to say like you can make that choice narratively if you want to but you need to give me a bigger reason than they really like fighting.
1: Yeah, when I read that that was a little rough. They put the trolls down there in the south and really don't give any reason with the red caps they're just like the red caps fought on all sides because fighting and bloodshed and I'm like I buy that red caps. Okay, I really don't need much of a lift there. But then Skaha is the very next sentence. Uh, like, I think they more or less implied they kind of fought on both sides. But overall, the framing was much more with the South. And the entire justification was warriors. And I don't know. This is part of why I kind of wish White Wolf wouldn't get into the specifics of some of these more culturally problematic periods of history.
0: And the thing that really got me about that, too, is later, like, they get into the Changeling history again, they get into the Resurgence War, and they have a slightly different line from the other books on what happens with Skaha in the Resurgence War. Like, not super different, but a little different. That would have been the point to make more of the Civil War, Cordance War, Coming War in Concordia, like, metaphor work, where Skaha does something different this time because history happened. Like they could have just been like, based on their experience doing this previously, they went neutral, or they sided with the commoners, or the house was split in a way it wasn't split before. But instead, they just kind of went with Skaha did their thing and don't mention anything that happened in the past, which is a missed opportunities, isn't exactly a strong theme for this book, not the way it is for some of the other ones, but it's still there. And then they get into the history specific to the Kingdom of Willows following the Accordance War, and they mention that the Kingdom of Willows was originally um, assigned a different regent, and there's a reasonable amount of narrative space given to why they don't have that king anymore, and I just thought it was interesting that that was there, because the feeling you get from the various history sections on Concordia and generally the lack of information there is that like the kingdoms are inviolate since the Accordance War. And this points at like, that might not have been the idea and they might've had plans for all of them to have like complicated histories, you know, the first of a series of kingdom books. Ha ha ha.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I really do think it's a shame we didn't get the other books because Especially like the Kingdom of Apples, which I'm sure would have been the end of the series. That would have been the climax. Having the sort of treatment of Queen Mab that Maelg gets here would have just been totally delicious. There's one thing that I take away from this book. It's that it really is kind of tragic that they didn't finish this thought because it was a good thought.
0: And then the next section they get into is a lot of real-world geography stuff with Dreaming layered on top of it. I'm gonna be honest, I skimmed this section a lot due to my bias against um, using region books. I mean, there was stuff there. I take issue with what they've decided is part of the regional South. Like we mentioned earlier, I don't get why DC is a part of the South.
1: Yeah, the whole DC write-up is so weird. There's one thing I do have to share, though. I got such a chuckle out of the write-up about how the glamour of DC might just be too tainted because all of the dreams of seeking nefarious, unmitigated power and the rise and fall of politicians and that DC may have pushed so many changelings into the shadow court. And I read that, and I just – I went ahead and physically flipped back to the copyright page, and I was like, you wrote this in 1999 man, if only you had known what was coming, that this was written pre-9-11 to say nothing about pre-the last decade is kind of funny, almost, in like a horribly ironic way. But the flip side is, like, when they get back to DC later, I feel like they just sort of tagged DC into the South and didn't really know what to do with it, and maybe it's because it isn't clearly part of any other kingdom either. I don't know, it was a very strange choice to include.
0: And this is the section where you start getting some mention of the Lost Ones that they set up earlier. I just thought that was remarkable, because I can't think of anywhere else in the line where they go into detail about Lost One Freeholds and what might be there, and, you know, it's not something I think I would use, but I thought it was interesting just getting back onto the geography thing for a minute like if we're talking about changeling and you know the regional south in america i don't get why they relegated new orleans to about a paragraph and i don't get why the florida keys aren't mentioned at all oh my god (laughs) like if changeling has anything to do with the regional south why not those places
1: i thought the new orleans write-up was really strange the other thing that struck me though I was looking at it, and I was struck by how short it was. And like most of the geography section, kind of superficial. I mean, this is one of the problems with taking the city book concept, which is kind of what they took format-wise, but then try to, you know, do an entire region of the United States is there's just so much to cover, and a lot of it's going to get hand-waved. But with New Orleans specifically, I looked at it, and I realized this is – barely touching on anything, and it's pre-Katrina New Orleans. The absence of 9-11 and the absence of Katrina and the absence of a lot of the other things that are in our minds so defining, I would say more defining moments in this region, was very apparent while I was writing it, which is obviously not a critique about, you know, how it was written or put together. It's just it is very much a book of its time. And I think For a lot of the regional stuff, as opposed to the canon stuff, unless you want to run a game in the 90s, it's going to be rough to use. Even ignoring the limitations of uh, the research that goes into a game book, and wouldn't it be better for you just to do the research yourself, even ignoring that stuff, getting into the regional sections made that of its time really stark for me. I would say the most defining thing about the geography section, like as an example, the Duchy of Bluegrasses, which I'm looking at right now, is two pages for an entire duchy. You have a paragraph on Louisville, Kentucky, a paragraph. This whole chapter, like if you're at the beginning of planning for a campaign and you want to just scroll through and find like that. Inspiration of, oh yeah, I'd kind of like to set something there. And is there a character or two in the back related to this region as just an idea exercise? I guess there's a little bit of value there, but there's not enough written about any one area to really do anything with. You know, you get, like Memphis has almost a column better than Louisville, but it's still... Just not a lot, and most of it, you know, as Simon said earlier, really reads like travel guide fodder. Some of the freeholds are maybe worth tapping, but not every area even necessarily has a freehold. So it's just, it's a rough chapter to get any real use out of.
0: Yeah, if I was going to make a recommendation for people reading this for stuff to use... I'd go to chapter Four first and look at the chapters that have really long descriptions of characters and see what regions they're attached to, and then go back to the geography section because honestly, a lot of the really good like narrative hooks are in the characters, even when they're really about the place. And then moving on, look have at a chapter about the politics and culture of the regional South, the Kingdom of Willows specifically. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, they touch on the throne politics and the political conflict coming in War in Concordia, and honestly, I think this version of it is more compelling. They go into some of the standard changeling politics stuff, talking about the Seelie versus Unseelie thing, the radicals, the progressives, all of that. They go through the political impulses. For the she-only, I noticed, but whatever. Like, it's right next to talking about the crown politics. And I kind of wish they would have taken this moment to replace the political impulses with the throne politics stuff, because honestly, that stuff is more interesting.
1: Yeah, I would agree. Like, there's a little acknowledgement of commoners in some of the impulse write-ups. Like, they talk about anarchists and how there are very few she that have anything to do with that impulse. So, like, the presence of commoners are acknowledged but it's sort of passively this chapter then goes immediately into secret and not so secret societies, which is not terribly useful. I mean, these societies get, I think at most three paragraphs of any of them and I read them and they might have like a couple sentences that frames them specifically around the kingdom of willows, but they're mostly just generic write-ups and mostly of secret societies that appear in other books The one thing they did that I thought was interesting in this chapter is when they get into culture and they get into, there's this huge sidebar, politics, Southern style. In this book, they take the whole feudal chimerical world and they make it part of the South. So you're not just reenacting high medieval court, you're reenacting the pastoral Southern court structure the she have sort of taken that dream into themselves there's some grossness there to be certain but there's a lot of grossness in the normal feudal system as well and i found the idea of changeling society actually changing to become part of the region that it's in to be really interesting i think you get a better tension on the traditional versus modern the what's being overlaid, that dream is still kind of alive in the South, more so in the 90s even than it is today. And I thought that was interesting because I can't think of anywhere else in the line I've seen them do that. And it made me wonder, what would that look like in the other regions? Is there a strong enough class dream in all parts of the united states to do that and what does that look like in other regions so you know like they get into to duels and some of the formal southern manners and expectations and i liked that they spent time on that i wish they had done more of that and less of some of the other things that ended up a little superficial
0: I had a weird like, split feeling on this whole chapter because, like you mentioned, they get into the secret societies and a lot of it's very duplicated word content from other books. But then there are a couple of, I think, mentioned nowhere else secret societies that are unique to the Kingdom of Willows, and these are the places where they start drawing really, really explicit comparisons between the real-world U.S. regional south and chimerical reality regional south and then, like, the dual stuff, I feel like I've read that before, maybe in one of the core books. So I was a little, I skimmed it a little bit, and, like, they put some, like, antebellum feeling on top of it. I don't really know how I felt about the whole thing. But then, like, as I got deeper into the culture section, they talk about gift-giving as a kind of dueling power move. and Some of the other stuff, I was looking at that, and I was like, this kind of reads like a a really rough early version of shaping combat from Exalted. It's kind of a weird thought I had while reading this, but the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, that kind of works for what they're doing with this book.
1: Yeah, I like any time you get an atmosphere of shaping combat, because I think of all the supernaturals, changelings should have the most complicated social orders, and they often don't in the books. And I feel like this section got a lot closer to that, even insofar as acknowledging the role of the Bible Belt and like, what does that mean to changelings? And even just like the thought experiment of putting changelings in that setting mixed in with other religions, given, you know, the background with baptism, et cetera, et cetera. And so I like the complexity that they introduced here.
0: And then kind of blending into the next chapter, you get into the signature characters. There are a lot of big names here for the Kingdom of Willows, Warren Concordia plot. And like some of these like storyteller character write-ups are pushing three or four pages of just like straight up talking about this person. Which I thought was really interesting because normally they're like two max. I'm just going to use Milgi as an example here because I think it's one of the better written ones they go through and they do this really in the real world very frustrating thing but in storytelling really interesting thing where they talk about his image that he projects versus his history that he's lived it works really well like they talk about how he's actually a transplant from the north but he rejects this image of being a southern gentleman and they talk about how his subjects all kind of suspect that he's part of the Shadow Court, but like they're divided on whether it's like he's using the Shadow Court or the Shadow Court's using him or like maybe he's not really even part of the Shadow Court, but they're using him. Like they do that for a lot of the big name characters, much more so than the weird prophecy section in Warren Concordia. I feel like this is giving you a really good window into what they were going to do further down the line with the metaplot, which makes me sad about as much as it makes me excited.
1: I love this whole section. I love that we get, like, mortal backstory on High Queen Feraleth. Because talk about a character who could very easily just be a placeholder, and she isn't. I find myself weirdly loving Feraleth every time I read about her, Not necessarily the way they ended up using her, but the way, in my head, she could have been used. This chapter, even just little things like Seif being identified as the Chosen of Caliburn. And it's just, it's very evocative. The art in this chapter is very evocative. And there are a lot of little details about these characters that make them easier to pick up and use than I'm used to seeing in NPC write-ups. They're very complete. I think my only complaint, and this isn't a Kingdom of Willows complaint, it's actually kind of a, a broad, change line complaint, they spend all this word count, they give treasures sometimes, they give you these role-playing hints, and they don't give you stat sheets. And okay, I don't need a stat sheet for my NPCs, but... The whole advantage of prefab NPCs is that you can pick them up and go and you don't need to do as much planning, you know, for either an early storyteller who doesn't feel experienced yet or a storyteller in a hurry. It's really nice to have a complete package and they don't give you that. And it's just like so close to a finished product. It's a bit of a nitpick, but it's one of my only complaints about this chapter.
0: Like you said, that's very white wolfy. And then they do that thing again with this book where they break out the other characters. They have two chapters on signature characters. They have the signature characters who are Kithane, and the signature characters who are not Kithane. Don't find that a useful distinction. This is the most frustrating part of this book for me, apart from the history section, because they do a lot of Nunahy characters who are... More standard, like, changing the Dreaming signature characters where you get, like, a page max on them. But it's still, it's a lot more than he normally get. And every character, every single one, even in the previous chapter, had a little section, like, story connection, I think is what they called it. And in the previous section, like, I think there was one character who wasn't connected to the main story of the book. In the Galane and Prodigals section... I think there's one character who is like tangentially maybe connected to the plot. Everybody else has nothing to do with the main plot. And like we complain a lot about how like the Nunyahi story should be about the Nunyahi. And we complain a lot about that same idea with reference to, you know, basically all of the non white groups. And this book, this book is like deep, deep in like the issue are the ethnic African American kith which is better than the second edition this is africa the middle east and india Kif. i'll give them that but not a huge improvement they just have so many missed opportunities with not linking them to the main story of this book in some way like when they were talking about the reconstruction period in the history section that would have been a great time to mention that like the issue have their own nobility how does that work in a world where there aren't she? Don't know. And the same thing here with the Nunihi. They make some of the better Nunehi signature characters for this book, but there's no way to use them with this book, because none of them are tied to the story. Same thing with the inanime. Same thing with the werewolves. Same thing with the mage. Same thing with the wraith. Then like, they get into the human element, and they start talking about the Dante and the Autumn people and the Enchanted, and it's just like a paragraph on each group, and like, these guys exist, you might use them. Which is pretty disappointing. Like, I don't know if they ran out of money writing this book, or like, if they just didn't want to do this, but if they didn't want to do this, they shouldn't have included them. On the flip side, though, the vampire signature character is decent. They gave him some connections to the story. He kind of travels in the same circles as Milgi, and like it's not super clear whether like they really know each other or whether they just kind of know each other's like presence in society in Atlanta, but he has some hooks into the main story of this book, without really dragging him all the way into dreaming weird politics stuff. So like they are capable of writing these characters in a way that fit them into the story, sort of. They just didn't do it for any of the other ones, and I find that really frustrating.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, like, even the first Nunihi signature character, like we talked about, oh, their story should be about themselves, he has no connection to the story in the book, but his story still isn't about... Like, it's still defined as a reaction to colonialization and what i really want from a nunyuki character is a backstory that is about the culture the character is from that is about their own unique experience and like get them up to the current setting and then make them part of whatever's going on like they don't need to only exist as a reflection of that story but like they should still exist in the same world and they're can be some connection. There can be, oh, they see an opportunity in the chaos that's happening over there. You know, something that hooks them in just don't make their entire story nothing but a reflection of their opinion of the Cathayne. That's what I'm looking for. And the Nunihi write-ups kind of failed on both fronts, unfortunately. You know, the write-ups later on, like Simon said... The vampire write up is decent. It's still very short. You'd still really be better off pulling like you know a Southern by Night book and just pulling an n p c from there and get an actual name and some clan dynamics. I think they acknowledge he's Giovanni okay, it's a strange pitch for changeling. you know the further into this chapter you get, the like less significant the writing gets and I think. There was probably an outline with some obligatory headings, and just like by the end, like there's a paragraph on the Dante that does nothing. It introduces nothing. I wish that they had struck some of that entirely if they didn't really have the resources to fully flesh it out. But that said, I like some of what they did with the inanime. I like that the inanime have characters. They talk about the nymphs, which was a whole in-anime concept that never fully got fleshed out. It wasn't really in Secret Way. I think the nymphs were supposed to be the Kubera, but they aren't quite described the same way. So given that this was written at a point that I think Secret Way had been written, I was a little surprised to see the nymphs there. So, I mean, there are bits and pieces of this chapter that are useful, but it gets a little thin, One thing I really did like was in the treasures section near the end, like they include Caliburn and they describe Caliburn's powers in terms of known powers and powers David knows about. It isn't this is what the treasure does. And it's a small thing, but I'm really glad that they framed it that way and left it that narratively open because they don't always do that with epic treasures in Changeling books.
0: Yeah, I also liked that approach with it. I also think Milgi gets one of the better treasures in the book, because it's definitely like a storyteller-only kind of thing, because it totally erases his house flaw, but it does not in a really interesting way.
1: The last real chapter worth acknowledging, there's just a tiny little chapter on storytelling, and that heading, like, chapter, storytelling is the bane of my existence. I tend to hate these chapters. I actually kind of like the storytelling chapter in this book. It doesn't waste its time telling you, like, how to invoke mood and maybe put out some candles and how do you storytell. Like, it doesn't waste its time with that. It gives you some more details about the politics of what's going on in a very, like, here's some plot if you want to pull it sort of way. It talks about a very high outline of what a Chronicle of Calvern would look like if you want to follow Seif taking this sword around. And then it gives you a bunch of story seeds, which, you know, some people like story seeds, some people don't care for them. But I like the fact that it just gets right into the meaty, useful pieces of a storytelling chapter and doesn't waste time reprinting stuff. There's a small section on Nunihi stories. It's not terribly useful. I would have liked some actual story seeds for Nunihi stories instead. It's just a couple paragraphs. I'm like, well, I guess if you want to tell a Nunihi story, here are some words that encourage you to do that. That's a little disappointing. But overall, it's useful. There's a timeline at the end that just relates to the chronicle and gives you very nice, distinct dates. Again, I don't tend to pull my stories from books very often, so a little bit of a grain of salt on my opinion on this, but I feel like it's one of the better storytelling sections I've seen in a changeling book. As someone who doesn't tend to like these chapters, though, take that for what you will.
0: And then you get into the appendix section with a lot of debris I didn't really care about, although the Thoughtcrafters are there.
1: (laughs) And I love the Thoughtcrafters. My only complaint about the Thought Crafters is they're new. They're into invention. They're more connected to their dreamers than any other Nuniki group. They still live out on nature preserves. What? But if you like strike that sentence and ignore the, they wear traditional indigenous clothing all the time for reasons. If you strike those two things, they're a great kith. They're fantastic. I love them.
0: Yeah, they were one of the places in this book where I like looked at the art and I was like, what just happened here? <laughs> there was another yeah. one. Way back in the signature character chapter, there's art that I think is supposed to be Queen, Kruen, something like that. And like I cannot figure out if she has arms. It was just very strange.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then there's like Sexy Man with a Horsehead. Like, while we're talking about the art, I mean... Kingdom of Willows has some real winners.
0: <laughs> Alright, so just like the metaplot in this entire book for C20, the points are made up and the plot doesn't matter. I think this book kind of belongs to the second-ish era of the Changeling metaplot. Like, we're definitely getting into the end here where, like, the denizens exist and there's some sort of a difference between the Unseelie Court and the Shadow Court, but it's still... Our metaphor doesn't really seem to work here very well.
1: <laughs> yeah, our metaphor is more about how the game views the mythic era, all this modern story. I don't know that this question applies. Is the system
0: functional? There isn't really a ton in this book, and when it does have it, it's very like, here's some treasures that are all pretty signature charactery kind of plot-level things, so you might have to wing it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the Thoughtcrafters are a good write-up. They have good birthrights and frailties. So I'd say yes, but n- not a lot to spend our time on.
0: How cohesive is this with other Dreaming products? A lot like some of the other books we're doing around this one, it really depends on what your standing point is. Like, If you like the end-of-second-edition Discordia plot, this book is great. If you prefer the... You know, the Fomorians are coming back and, oh my god, nightmare thing that's going on in C20. It doesn't work so great.
1: This story is acknowledged in C20, but it is quickly invalidated and made meaningless by David coming back as a banality zombie and and we're never going to talk about what's going on in the kingdom anymore. So, yeah, I would say, overall, it's well-researched. At the time it was released, it connected well with what was already written and it is the foundation that all the later books were written we kind of read these out of order we really should have read this first then fool's luck then war in concordia but we're rebels we're anarchists and we refuse you know so if you're interested in that final metaplot story this is the foundation it's all built on so it's more a question of were all the other books coherent with this one and i would say by and large yes
0: Alright, Victor. Was this
1: enjoyable reading? Yeah, I'd actually probably give this a four. It's well written. You know, the thing that keeps it from going beyond a four is really that whole geography section, which is not poorly written. It's not like it's full of inconsistencies and angry making, but it's just not gripping. But the history section's really well put together. It's got the best character write-ups I've seen in any Changeling book. And The most I ever got was annoyed. Like, no part of this book ever actually made me angry. Yeah, I'd I'd give it a four. I think it's a really well-put-together book.
0: Yeah, it's a four for me, too. Like, I... All of my problems with the history section are there. This is still a better attempt than I think any other Changeling book has done on handling delicate real-world historical problems that continue to affect us today, but it's not ideal. And like I actually read the signature character section, which I never do because it's usually boring, and this one was pretty good, just from a like whether or not I enjoyed it perspective, which is better than White Wolf usually does. Then we have the art and the layout. I gotta say, the art in this one mostly didn't grip me. There were a lot of pieces I looked at, and I was just like, I'm not really sure about this. I mean, I guess it's mediocre. Like, I wasn't pissed about anything, but I also wasn't interested.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say the art in here is all very well technically executed. And some of it is kind of interesting. That sexy horsehead man pick is never going to leave my brain. But I agree, like, a lot of it's kind of obligatory. It's all in proportion. There's good lighting. But, like, there's, like, a shot that's clearly World War II airmen, and it's just kind of like, okay, cool, this is, a, I guess, a well-done picture of World War II airmen. The book has a lot of that stuff. There are a few things I liked more. I liked some of the character pieces a lot. I really liked Maelg's portraits. And I like the artist who does the chapter openings, where she's very sketchy, but it's very evocative. There's a lot of movement. There's, like, a piece of mail, just, like, on a balcony looking over the party, and you could imagine this is, like, the party where David gets kidnapped. So there are a few pieces that I liked, but there were no slua in a tire swing. So yeah, I'd probably give it a three. There's nothing upsetting enough for me to put it below a three, but there's very little exciting enough for me to get it near a four.
0: Yeah, the maelg looking out over the balcony thing. That one didn't strike me till much, much later in the book. When I was looking at it on my first pass-through, I was like, oh, he has bunny slippers on. That's very... I don't get what's going on there. And then I got to the end with his character write-up, where they're talking about how he's barking mad, and I was like, oh, those are dead puka. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) The one-sentence review for this book. For me, it's going to be, this is the book where Changeling finally turns into a game that fits in the rest of the world of darkness.
1: I don't know that I can come up with a better one sentence review. Like that's the review. I guess maybe you want to buy this book. If you care about the changeling story, the only people that I can think of who like changeling, that I would not recommend this book to are people who just buy pillar books and then totally run their own thing with it. Okay. You don't care about this book, but if you care about the story at all, And you're only going to buy one of the Mataplot books. This is the book.
0: All right. We want to thank everybody for listening to us, finally talking about books we liked (laughs) in Changeling the Dreaming.
1: And man, it feels good. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. Also, I apologize for my ravaged throat. (laughs) I know that it's probably a little scratchier than you're all used to.
0: All right, we hope you will uh, join us again next time. And just want to thank Victor for putting up with me not complaining about a book.
1: It had to happen sooner or later. We hope you join us for our next conversation on walking away from (laughs) Arcadia.